praise you that your grace has been made manifest by the appearing of your son, Jesus Christ. May we make that evident today through your word. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, and we'll dismiss any children at this time for Children's Church. Any children through the third grade can head on out for Children's Church. I want you to think with me for just a second. What is the worst Christmas present you have ever gotten? I don't want you to, to say that because that person who gave it to you may be here and you don't want to hurt their feelings. Uh, but think about some of those really bad Christmas presents you got, right? Uh, I think many husbands, not including me, I've not done this, but many husbands have foolishly gotten their wives mops and uh, you know, kitchen utensils for Christmas, and then the wife's like, thanks, you know, that's a great Christmas gift. Um, my dad, this is a true story, when I asked my mom, hey, what do you want for Christmas? It was like their first year being married, and she said, nothing, which of course doesn't actually mean nothing. That means I want you to figure it out, right? That's what that means. Uh, and so he took her at her word, and he got her nothing. And apparently that didn't exactly go over too well. Um, yeah, that's, that, that wasn't a, a great move. Every year he manages to, to get her something for Christmas. Um, it's hard buying gifts for your spouse, isn't it? And especially when you get to a stage where you're like, well, we've got everything we need, and I don't know what they really want. Well, my wife is really a blessing. She tells me, this is what I want, and so, boom, I know what to get her. It's going to be, it's very predictable, but at least I get something that, you know, that she likes, well, one Christmas present, very few of us, and actually none of us, want to unwrap under the tree Christmas morning is the gift, the Christmas present of suffering, of perseverance in our suffering. None of us, none of us want to get that gift. We don't want to open the gift under the tree and God's like, here's perseverance, here's suffering for you as a gift. None of us want to suffer. None of us go just saying, I, I want to just sign up for suffering. I'm just going to go and, and do this as, my, as something I just really look forward to. Yet according to this passage, one of the gifts that the appearance of Jesus gives to us one of the gifts from Christmas past, his birth in the manger that, 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 that comes to us in our present is the ability to withstand suffering and to be bold and unashamed for his testimony even when it costs us. That's the logic of this text. You notice in verse 8, Paul says, Don't be ashamed, but rather partake of the afflictions. And then down in verse 12, he says, For this cause I suffer, and I am not ashamed. Right, so that's kind of what brackets this passage about. It's a call for us to be bold and to be unashamed for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then right at the heart of it, at the end of verse, uh, uh, beginning of verse 10, rather, we have this phrase, is now manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The appearing of Jesus, the, the birth of Jesus, the incarnation is what gives us the fuel to be able to stand when it is tough. So that's the argument of our text Christmas past, Jesus coming into this world, the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, gives us the grace upon which we lean that allows us to go through the fires of suffering. So very simply, here's the message today. God calls you and me as his people, and I'm speaking primarily to Christians today, but I will have a word to those who are not Christians. But he calls his people, calls Christians to persevere in suffering for his gospel and glory. We don't live in a world today, do we, where people want to persevere. We, we, we like to take the path of least resistance. We like to bail out when things get tough. If we don't like our job, well, I'll just quit. You know, I won't even give the employer two weeks' notice. I'm just going to go somewhere else. We have the, the great resignation going on right now, right? It's sort of the symptom of this larger uh, cultural malady where people don't want to stick with stuff that's hard. 
I go to college and I find out, man, I don't like these classes. Ah, just I quit showing up to class as a teacher. That would happen from time to time. You know, like we, we started a diet. Ah, this isn't very fun. I'm going to quit. I'm, I'm guilty of that. You get like two weeks in. You're like, I finished the entire diet. I, everything I was allowed to eat, a month's worth of food in two days, right? I did it. Uh, that's not how that works. In the Christian life, we often do the same thing. Is we don't want to persevere. We don't want to stick with it when it gets tough. A lot of people will make a profession of faith, and they'll, they'll pray a sinner's prayer, and they'll claim to be Christians, and then a year or two down the road, it becomes costly, and they're like, you know what, this isn't for me. Or, yeah, I'll, 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 be, I'll identify as a Christian, but, man, faithfully gathering with God's people, that's hard, that's inconvenient. Continuing to fight against sin, that's difficult. What's going on in the context here? We're talking about persecution. All of a sudden, as time goes on, it becomes costly to be a Christian. You begin to face shame. You begin to sort of be squeezed out of the center of life. You begin to find that being a Christian doesn't make you popular, but it makes you unpopular. You're no longer regarded as a moral person, but actually as an immoral bigot, right? If you claim to be a Christian and uphold what the Bible says. This text tells us that the appearing of Jesus gives us what we need to be able to withstand suffering, whatever that suffering may look like. So I want to just walk through this. The first reality, the first truth I want to draw out from the appearing of Jesus, this is right at the heart of the text, is this. Jesus' appearing empowers our perseverance. And really, this is the main point of the message, but I want to kind of give you the 30,000-foot view of the text. If you noticed, verse 8 all the way down to verse uh, 11, and even actually verse 12 in the Greek is one sentence. This is one big sentence with all of these modifiers going every which way. It's kind of a lot to untangle, okay, verses 8 to 12. Um, in First Timothy 1. So let me just overview it. The main point of the text is verse 8. Okay, there's where our commands are. Don't be ashamed, but rather join me in suffering. Paul is saying to Timothy, uh, his protege in the faith, be willing to suffer. Don't be ashamed. Now, a little bit of context. This is written, this is the very last thing that Paul ever writes that we have record of. Paul's coming to the end of his life. He's in a Roman prison this is not his first imprisonment where he's under house arrest, can have visitors. No, he's in a, in a prison cell in a dark, damp hole in the city of Rome. The emperor is a guy by the name of Nero, and if you remember your history, Nero was a complete nutcase. And Nero went on this killing spree of Christians. This is when Peter was going to be executed. He's going to be crucified upside down, according to tradition. And Paul is going to be executed by beheading because he's a Roman citizen. All of a sudden, being a Christian has become incredibly unpopular and even dangerous. Paul knows he is soon going to pass off the scene, and Timothy will be standing alone, facing this persecution without his mentor in the faith. So the fact that Paul says, be, don't be ashamed, suggests that there is a real temptation to be ashamed. Right? To say, you know, this Christianity thing, I'm going to kind of take it, make it low-key. I'm not going to be bold about this. I'm not going to publicly identify this way. He says, do not be ashamed. And he says, notice in verse 8, a couple of things not to be ashamed of. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. That's shorthand for the gospel. Don't be ashamed of the message about Jesus. Hey, this whole business of being, being part of a movement led by a crucified Messiah, that, that's not really a winning proposition. Jesus is not this great charismatic leader. No, he is a scorned, crucified Messiah who, who, who faced the most humiliating execution imaginable for the powers of the day. Then he says this in verse 8, don't be ashamed of me, the prisoner of the Lord, his, his prisoner. Paul's no longer someone that you want to be associated with. I mean, who wants to be part of a, a movement that lead spokesman is now an imprisoned preacher? 
But instead, notice the contrast in verse 8. But be thou a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel. There's the positive command. Literally, join with me in suffering. And later on in this book, Paul will say to Timothy, Yea, and all who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. When you became a Christian, being a Christian means you sign up for suffering. It means you sign up for persecution. It means you sign up for a difficult life of taking up your cross and following Jesus. By the way, if you've been told that being a Christian will make your life better, if you've been told that, hey, become a Christian and your relationships will improve, become a Christian and you'll do better at your job, you have been lied to. Right? If you've been told that being a Christian will make this life easier and better, and that's been the motive for you following Jesus, you're not following the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible says, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and be following me. It's a life of putting sin to death. It's a life of not trying to fulfill yourself, but rather of saying, these sins which maybe are so attractive and natural to me have got to be crucified with Jesus. They've got to be put to death. I need to live a life of increasing repentance, a life of confession, a life of submitting myself to the word of God. Now, yes, it is a life of joy. It is a life where God gives you supernatural joy because you have Jesus. But it's not a life of ease on the horizontal plane. So what's going on in verses 9 and 10? This is really where our main thought is found. Verses 9 and 10 are giving the, the, the motivations for this call to suffer. So Paul is saying, Timothy, be willing to suffer. If I came along to you today and says, all right, everybody, I've got a great idea. What we're all going to do is we're all going to just suffer. Yeah, it's going to be great. Let's all suffer together. Let's all, let's all make sure that the, the culture hates us and that we all get imprisoned and our houses get taken from us and we all get fired. Let's do this. You'd be like, you're crazy, right? We would need a really, really good reason to be, be willing to do that. Uh, unless there's something wrong with you, nobody just does that because that sounds fun. No, we only suffer if there is a really good cause or reason, right? We only, we only will undergo this kind of thing if there is a meaningful motivation, a meaningful cause. So verses 9 and 10 tell us what that cause is. He has saved us, he has called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher for, of the Gentiles. So notice that word gospel. It's in verse 8. Be a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel. And then we get it again at the end of verse 10. We're getting a summary here of the gospel. Paul's saying, I am suffering because of the gospel. Timothy, you also need to be willing to suffer for the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? Here it is in verses 9 and 10. God's shown his grace to us in eternity past and revealed it in the coming of Jesus and given us eternal life. That's a good reason to suffer. Verse 12, for which cause, Paul says, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. So notice verse 8, he tells Timothy, don't be ashamed, but be willing to suffer. And then in verse 12, Paul comes around and says, I myself suffer and am not ashamed. So he begins with this idea of be willing to suffer, and we go through this whole meandering thing in verses 9 and 10, and then we come out the other side, and he repeats that. So the logic of this is quite simple. Be willing to do verse 8 because of verses 9 and 10. Be willing to stand boldly for Jesus, even if it costs you, because the message that we declare and the reality that we have is so glorious. We've been appointed to represent Jesus. 
So verses 9 and 10 are kind of like a funnel. Notice it starts really broad in verse 9. He saved us. He's called us. There's this eternal grace. And then we come down to sort of the, the spout of the funnel. And here's the spout through which all of this grace comes to us by the appearing of Jesus, verse 10. So here's what I'm doing. I'm just, I'm just setting up the stage here. I'm arguing here that the phrase in verse 10 is made manifest by the appearing of Jesus is the absolute heart of the text. This is the fulcrum on which everything balances. This is the hinge on which the door swings. Now, you can analyze this and see this is at the very heart of this. So be willing to suffer because of the gospel and the gospel that comes to us through the appearing of Jesus, which we celebrate at Christmas. Now, that was almost all introduction. It's actually, I put it under point one so it wouldn't feel like we had a 30-minute introduction. But the appearing of Jesus, according to the logic of the text, calls us to suffer. That's the point and, and now that, that I'm making. Now, with that fact established, I want to just grab onto that phrase in verse 10, made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus coming into this world. And I want to just think about what that accomplishes and how it makes the reality of this first point happen. How is it that the appearing of Jesus motivates us to persevere in suffering? What is it that Jesus accomplished being born in the manger, coming into this world, the word becoming flesh, dwelling among us? What did that accomplish according to this paragraph? Well, here's our second reality that I want to want to declare to you, Jesus' appearing not only gives us the ability to persevere in suffering, number two, Jesus' appearing revealed God's grace. Hey, look back in the text. Verse 10 says, but now is made manifest. Now, the question here is, what is made manifest? We gotta, what we've got to do from verse 10 is sort of put the truck into reverse and back up and see how did we get here, right? Like, let's kind of retrace our steps. Let's walk backwards and see how we got to this point. We back up into the end of verse 9, and we see... That whatever this is as made manifest was given to us in Christ before the world began. We're still not told what it is. Go to the phrase before that in verse 9. Hopefully you have your Bibles open, by the way. You bring your Bibles to church to looking at the word, what it actually says. We're saved according to his own purpose and grace. Okay, there, there's, there's our subject, grace. And then this grace was given to us in Christ Jesus and is now made manifest. The appearing of Jesus revealed God's grace. Now, we talked about this a lot last week. But Jesus coming into this world is the embodiment of God's favor and his generosity. Now, look at some realities about this grace. This grace is sovereign grace. Here's what I mean by it. It's grace that God himself dispenses, not based on anything we do. That is very clear in verse 9. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. And just in case you thought it had something to do with you, being a Christian, being saved, it was given to us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Literally, in times eternal. Okay, before times eternal. Now, was there any of us here who was like, yeah, I was there in the eternal counsels of God to try to put my finger on the scale? No, the answer is no. We literally had nothing that, that we bring to the t- we, we literally bring nothing to the table here except the sin that makes our salvation necessary. We do nothing that makes us savable. God does it all. It is sovereign grace that is planned and granted in eternity. Not just sort of broadly, the broad sweep of I'm going to save the world, here's the plan. But notice how personal that is in verse 9. It was given to us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Before you and I even existed, before we had even done any quote-unquote good things, which by the way we haven't, God showered his grace on us. Pretty incredible, isn't it? God does not look down the corridors of time and be like, oh, there's a good person and I'll put my grace on them. There are no good people. 
right? We are all sinners fallen in Adam and rebels against God. So there's nothing in us that God's looking at and be like, oh, you, you've, you've checked some boxes and so you will be the recipient of my grace. No, this is pure favor from God based on, you say, well, what, what, what didn't my purposes and my desires have something to do with it? Well, the verse says it's according to his own purposes. It explicitly says this is based exclusively on what God has done. That's pretty awesome. This is sovereign grace. By the way, we're, we're, this is affirmed over and over again in the New Testament. By grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, like none of it is of you. It's the gift of God, not a works lest any man should boast. Titus 3.5 says that it's not according to works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Ephesians 1.4 says that he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we'd be without, we would be holy and without blame before him. Romans 9.11 affirms the same thing, that it is not based on good works that we have done, but on God's grace. Very clear in verse 9. Now, if you're here this morning and you're thinking, I'm going to heaven because I'm a good person, you have to contend with a direct statement of Scripture that you're not going to heaven because you're a good person, because you're not a good person. The Bible says that we, are all, we, we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that means this. That means more than just, well, I'm a decent person, but I'm imperfect. Being a sinner means I have completely bent away from God. I have rebelled against him. I violated his law. Now, on a human level, you may be a nice moral person, but the standard is not everybody else, right? When we get to heaven, God's not grading on a curve. Judgment day is not going to be, you know, if you made it past the 50th percentile, you get in and everyone else goes to the other place. That's not how it works. The standard God has is this, be ye therefore perfect, even as my father, which in heaven is perfect. That's an that's a impossibly high standard that none of us meet. None of us even begin to come close to it. In fact, we on a daily basis violate God's law. You ever tell a lie before? You ever take something that doesn't belong to you? You ever look at someone who is not your spouse with lust? You ever value something more than you value God? You ever forsake the assembling of God's people because something better was going on? All of these are ways that we violate God's law and we deserve his judgment. The wages of sin is death. The only hope for you and I to be saved is to be saved by God's favor, by God's sovereign grace. You say, well, maybe, maybe I have sort of a desire for God and he honors that. The Bible says there is none that understandeth, none that seeketh after God. Ephesians 2 says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We can no more save ourselves than a dead person can raise themselves to life. It's got to be by grace. And so Paul is saying this, the, the appearing of Jesus is what unleashes this grace. He goes back into eternity past. God decided to show this grace to us in eternity past, but it's now been revealed in time, verse 10. It is now made manifest, made visible. We wouldn't, we wouldn't know God's grace. We could not see God's grace. We could not experience God's grace apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ. He is the one who brings it to us like that funnel, God's eternal grace coming to us through Jesus it's revealed in time. So the from all eternity of verse 9 is answered by the but now of verse 10. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. What was happening with the baby in the manger? It's more than, oh, here's Jesus. Look at him. He's so cute. No, it is God's grace entering into the world. And if the baby wasn't born in the manger, there would be no grace. There would be no salvation for us. Our ability to suffer is driven by the fact that we have received God's eternal sovereign grace shown to us in Jesus. 
we were tempted to feel shame. Why, why do we feel shame? Shame is sort of that sense of pain that, uh-oh, people are looking at me. They're, they're thinking ill of me. I'm, I'm on the outs. When God's grace says, you're actually on the end. You're on the inside. You're in the ultimate inner ring. You are ultimately, you're, you're part of the family of God. You're accepted in the beloved. Which would you rather have, all of the world love you or have God love you? And this is saying God loves you from eternity past and nothing's going to change that. We need to get our, our feet on this rock of God's grace. But this grace that's been revealed to us in Jesus, it's not just sovereign grace. Let's keep putting the truck in reverse. We've backed up from that phrase in verse 10. It was, it's now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior. What has been? God's grace that is according to his own purposes, given to us before the, before the world began. But we back up even further. Who has saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to works. So this grace is not only sovereign grace, it is saving grace. Okay, the word grace simply means favor or generosity. God shows his generosity to us in, in a million different ways. Okay, the sun is shining outside. You realize if, there was, if the sun suddenly went dark, we'd all die, right? You realize if the, if the earth stopped rotating, all of us on the, who were on the dark side, we would all, I don't mean like the dark side, but I mean like on the side where the sun wasn't, we'd, we'd freeze to death eventually. God's kindness and his favor allows the sun to rise every day, the rain to fall. He gives us life. He gives us homes in which to live. He gives us jobs. And even thousands of people who would deny the existence of God, billions of people who wouldn't give God the time of day, God gives them life. He shows that kind of grace to all people. But what we're talking about here is grace that saves us from sin and from the wrath of God and from eternal hell. And this grace, it says, he saved us, delivered us, rescued us in a way when we couldn't rescue ourselves. Not only that, but he called us. He was the one who summoned us to faith in Jesus. You say, where's faith in this? It's wrapped up in the idea of God calling us. That time and that place in your life when you heard the gospel and you voluntarily and willingly responded in obedience and faith. Now, what's going on there? You might say, well, I, you know, someone came and gave me a tract or someone witnessed to me or I met someone at the fairgrounds or, you know, someone invited me to church or I was sitting in VBS. Those are all ways that God uses to, to save us, to call us. But ultimately behind that is a God who is working this amazing plan of salvation. This is saving grace that comes to us ultimately through the funnel of Christmas, Jesus coming into this world. My question is, has that happened in your life? Has there been a time and place that you can look back to and say, yes, God has definitely called me to himself? I've heard and understood the good news of the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, and I've responded in faith and repentance and dependence on him. That even now, I'm not depending on my own works, but I'm depending on Jesus alone. Has that happened decisively? And maybe there's a big question mark in your mind. I don't know. Today can be a day where you can leave this place with that question settled. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Literally anyone who calls on the name of the Lord in repentance and faith is saved. Whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So this grace is unleashed, it is revealed in the, in the appearing of Jesus, it is sovereign grace, 100% God, none of us. It is saving grace that rescues us from sin and from hell. But moving back to the main point, it is sustaining grace. So again, we're putting the vehicle in reverse from verse 10, backing up, beep, 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 back through verse 9. We come now to act back to verse 8 and the command, be thou therefore not ashamed. This grace that saves us from eternal hell sustains us, the present moment. 
Paul's argument is this, Timothy, be willing to stand boldly for the gospel, even when it costs you. Why? God's given you his grace, and this grace has been revealed to you in the historical appearance, the incarnation of Jesus. And this grace that has saved you, as the old hymn says, will surely bring you home through many dangerous toils and snares I already have come. Right? As we sing in amazing grace, this grace carries us through the Christian life. This grace motivates us to keep standing for Jesus. So if you're, if you're, 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 you're maybe feeling like, man, I, I don't feel like carrying on. Like, this is hard. This is painful. I'm going through some really, really rough stuff. Remind yourself of the grace, the sovereign, saving, sustaining grace of our God revealed to us through the baby in the manger who grew up, lived a sinless life, died on the cross for our sins. The same God who has called us will complete us. The same God who saved us will keep us. So what of our suffering? So when suffering comes along, like, man, I just, this, this doctor's appointment, this did not go well. What I'm feeling right now is very painful. The grief that I'm continuing to endure, the loneliness, even the dark clouds of depression. The suffering is real and it's hard. How does this help me? Well, you might be tempted in that moment to think that God has forgotten you. Like God has somehow dropped the ball or God is somehow not in control or this somehow slipped through the, the net of his sovereignty and, and it's an accident. This verse tells us that nothing is outside of his purposes. This is part of his plan in some way. You might be tempted to think that God has forgotten you, that pain and hardship signals the loss of God's favor. God doesn't love me anymore because I'm going through this. But if our standing in God's grace is based on something that happens in eternity, why would we think that something in time would change that? Right? And if God is eternal, there's going to be nothing that comes up in your life or my life that catches him by surprise. There's nothing that God's like, oh, wow, I didn't, I didn't know that was coming. I, I don't know where that fits into my plan. No, it all somehow fits into his plan. If grace is rooted in the eternal plan of God, then nothing in time can alter it. Suffering, sin, death, pain, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, Romans 8 says. Right? We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. When we suffer as God's children in this fallen world, you say, maybe my suffering is more to the point of what this text is talking about, suffering because of my Christianity, because of my stand, because of my boldness. Whether we're suffering in persecution or pain, what does that suffering do? It casts us onto the grace of God all the more. I think sometimes God brings suffering into the lives of his children so that we will be uncomfortable in this world and realize the only thing that can carry me on is the kindness and the favor of God. Of God, I don't have what it thinks. We're really good at feeling like I got this, right? We're 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 like a you know a redneck on a dirt bike with her. I got this. I can do this. And then God brings some stuff along where He's like, No, you don't, and you never did. Right? It's not that I suddenly needed God in that moment. Is that rather I suddenly realized how much I always needed Him. So simplified, here's Paul's point. Timothy, be willing to suffer for Jesus because he appeared and revealed God's grace. God's grace has saved you. God's grace has called you. This is sovereign, saving, sustaining grace. The historical reality of Jesus coming into this world proves that we have not bought into a myth. Why would I suffer for a myth? Why would I suffer for a lie? But no, he appeared bringing God's grace. This is historical reality. We have not followed a charlatan. We have followed someone who is worth following no matter the cost. 
amazing realities that Jesus is appearing accomplishes. It, it, it gives us what we need to persevere. It reveals God's grace. But here's a third reality, and this one is incredibly encouraging. Jesus is appearing, number three, defeated death. Look at verse 10. So we're taking that phrase, the appearing of our Savior. We're working backwards at a least grace. Now let's work forwards through verse 10. The appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Abolished death. What what an interesting phrase. Just be like, yep, death is done. I've, I've defeated death. I've beat death. I have abolished death. It no longer has binding force. Jesus' appearing defeated death. Now, how? It wasn't just his birth in the manger. It wasn't like, as soon as Jesus was born in the manger, nobody died ever again. Obviously, that's not the case, because everybody who was alive at that time died, right? How does he defeat death? Well, the same Jesus who revealed God's grace also defeats death. How? He defeats death through death. Right? If he's going to defeat death, he himself has to go through it and then come out the other side victorious. So his appearing at Christmas is essential to his dying at Calvary. Here's why. To defeat death, he himself had to taste of death. And we'll talk more about that next week in Hebrews 2. And to taste of death, he had to be truly human. God cannot die. So he has to take on a full, genuine human nature. So he has to be truly man. By the way, he does not surrender his divine nature at the cross it is not the, the person of God who dies, right? It's not like God died at the cross and there was no God to run the universe for three days and three nights. It was not the divine nature of Jesus that died. It was the human nature of Jesus that died at the cross. To truly be man, he had to be born into the world through Mary. You see how this chain is, is so tightly connected together. He's got to be man so he can die. And, and dying as a man, he is able to defeat death. So his death on the cross, ironically, was the death of death. Why? Why does death have force? According to 1 Corinthians 15, death has force because of what? Sin. The wages of what? Sin is death. So the only way death can ever be defeated, the only way we can be delivered from death is for us to be delivered from sin, is for sin to be taken care of. And at the cross, Jesus takes on all of our sins. He takes on the sins of the world, and he dies. What's going on there? He is suffering the just punishment of sin on our behalf. He takes away the eternal condemnation that we deserve by virtue of being rebels against God. The eternal death that we deserve of conscious torment in hell. By the way, that is what the Bible teaches for those who die without Jesus. Eternal, unending, perpetual, conscious torment in the place called hell. Like That's not a popular message. People want to soften that. If we're going to take the Bible seriously, that is what the Bible teaches. We're talking about Absolutely the most serious question that can be asked and answered. Where will you spend eternity? Through his death on the cross, Jesus delivers his people, delivers all those who believe in him and cling to him by faith. So Jesus, in his appearing, he abolished death in the sense that he defeated and destroyed the thing that gives death power, that is sin, delivering his people from eternal death. Now, we still die physically, but if you're a child of God, death is just the entrance into his glory, right? Death is not a, the end and it's all hope and darkness on the other side, but for the Christian it is a doorway into light and glory. But that's not all. He defeats death not only through his death but through his resurrection, and this is key. If Jesus just died on the cross and then was put in the, in the ground, he could not have achieved 
what he set out to achieve, which is the defeating of death. He's got to come out of the grave three days later. His coming out of the grave was a signal that death, the, the, the end of death is coming very near. Death has lost its sting. The grave has lost its victory because the eternal Son of God has gone into the grave and he has come out the other side victorious. So that means everyone who believes in Jesus, we receive something called eternal life. John 5 and 20, verse 24 says the moment we believe, you have eternal life. It doesn't begin when you die. It begins when you believe in Jesus. Look at verse, back to our text, verse 10. He's abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Jesus' resurrection is throwing open the doorway to eternal life. It is bringing immortality to his people. Again, we're not talking about just physical. We, we, we are all going to die at some point. Ten out of ten people are going to die. Every single one of you in this room will die one day. It's simply a question of when and how. Just being blunt with you. The question is, will you have eternal life or will you face eternal condemnation? One day, though, for those who know Jesus, the day of the resurrection is coming, we will, be, we will receive a glorified body with which to enjoy all of eternal life. We're not going to float around heaven like these, these you know, souls on clouds with little harps, these little spiritual harps. We're going to enjoy all of eternity in a resurrection body, a perfect body, an immortal body, a, a body through which we can enjoy all the things that God has prepared for us. That's our hope. Our hope is not just to die and our spirits float off to be with Jesus. But the day is coming when Jesus returns and all, who, all the dead who hear his voice will rise from the dead. That's an awesome reality. Now, notice how this is brought to us. Jesus, we've got this plan of grace in eternity past. It's brought, it is actualized by Jesus coming and appearing. He abolishes death. He brings life and immortality. Now, how does it come to you and me into our lives? Through the gospel. None of this is automatic. And I say, wow, God did this thing in eternity past. I can just go through life. No, we've got to hear the gospel. We've got to proclaim the gospel. We've got to believe the gospel. Through the gospel, what is the gospel? What is the good news of the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus that calls us to repent and believe? Look at verse 11. Whereunto, speaking of the gospel, I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. So how does God accomplish this plan? He gets people like the apostle Paul and people like Timothy who go around and tell other people about Jesus and what he has done and calling those individuals to believe in Jesus. None of this is yours until you hear the gospel and you actually repent and you believe in Jesus. You can't just say, well, I think it's mine and like Jesus died and these things happened. No, there's got to be this decisive hearing and responding and believing of the gospel. This is what I think is really cool. Paul and Timothy are very different people. God uses the brilliant apostle Paul, who's an incredible genius. He uses him to preach the gospel. He uses Timothy, who apparently is kind of a timid guy. He uses Peter, who's loud and boisterous, to declare the gospel. He uses all types. This is incredible. He uses you and me. He uses impetuous Peter and doubting Thomas. You see, the same grace that saved us appoints us. By the way, every one of us, you're a believer in Jesus. You're appointed, like Paul, to be a, be a preacher and a teacher. Maybe not to stand behind a pulpit, but to be a witness for Jesus. This is how God is unleashing this grace on the world is through the gospel preaching of his people. Now, think about the implications for our suffering. I want to drink, bring this back around. So, Timothy, be bold. Don't be ashamed. Be, you know, tell people about Jesus. 
He's unleashed grace that's never, you know, nothing's going to ever change that, but he's also defeated death. Okay, the most terrifying thing that can happen to any of us is that we die, right? That, that, that's the ultimate, the ultimate fear, the ultimate unknown. But if Jesus is like, hey, I have defeated death, I've abolished death, I've guaranteed eternal life to my people, the worst thing that anyone can do to you now, like say, we're going to execute you because you're a Christian, is give you an early ticket to heaven. That's that's basically Paul's argument. You need not fear death because Jesus has defeated it, right? You need not fear men because Jesus has defeated death. So many of us live life in fear. I even come here this morning being like, man, I'm just crippled by anxiety and fear in my life. I'm afraid to talk to people and to go out and do different things. What if we meditated on the reality that Jesus has won the victory for us? Right? Like he's defeated the greatest enemy, death. If he's defeated the greatest enemy, why would we fear the, the lesser enemies? Right? You think about that. If he has defeated the, the superpower of death, why would we be afraid of the little midgets of people looking at you funny and saying things about you? Or uh, if I do this, they may say that. It doesn't make any sense. Christ's coming has defanged the great lion that we fear, death. So be bold, beloved, in representing Jesus. Be bold. This is what this calls us to. If he defeated death, this calls us to be bold and unashamed. Be bold in inviting that friend to church. Kind of dancing around the issue for weeks. I'm like, should I, shouldn't I? Just invite him. Be bold in pressing into that that brother or sister's life. You're like, man, I I see a brother or sister in Christ, and I think they're struggling. I don't want to be the one to say something. No, no, press in there. We're we're brothers and sisters as members of this church. Press into each other's lives. Be, hold, be bold in holding that friend accountable. Be bold in telling people about Jesus because he's abolished death and unleashed life. So Jesus is appearing. Man, it, it accomplishes so much. All of these realities, it gives us what we need to persevere. It unleashes God's grace. It defeats death. But thirdly, or fourthly, Jesus is appearing Gives us confidence. Gives us confidence. So verse 12. If you look at it this way, in verse 8, Paul is addressing Timothy personally. And then he comes in and talks about us corporately in verses 9 and 10. And then verses 11 and 12, Paul talks about himself personally. He says, I'm appointed to be a preacher and an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles. Verse 11, I'm there to tell people about Jesus. For, for the which cause, I also suffer these things. Now, I think the cause is going back to the gospel. Paul's saying, I am suffering for the gospel. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. Paul's saying this, Timothy, the thing that I'm calling you to do, don't be ashamed, be willing to suffer. I myself am doing. Paul's a good leader, right? He's not asking Timothy to do anything other than what he himself is willing to do. He says, I'm not ashamed. Now, just pause. Paul went through all kinds of suffering. Christianity did not make Paul's life Real easy one, where he got all these speaking engagements and book deals, and he was getting royalties, and he's, you know, New York Times bestseller. No, Paul's imprisoned, he is beaten, he is rejected by his own people. He faces all these plots against his life. If you read Second Corinthians, he, he lays out all the things that happened to him. Here he is writing this from a dungeon in Rome. So as Paul comes out the other side of his argument, he's looking at the world through very clear eyes. This is not just... Hey, let's put on the rose-colored glasses. Everything's just peachy and wonderful. 
No, he's looking at the realities of suffering in the face. He's not thinking about it in the abstract of, well, let's see, if suffering were to come, we would do. No, he's, he's dealing with it. He's living in it. This is in the present tense. I am suffering. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. Even though he's suffering, he is bold and unashamed. Though Paul is imprisoned in a dark cell awaiting execution from the mighty Roman Empire, he defiantly says, I'm unashamed. He doesn't doesn't back down. He doesn't recant. In a sense, Paul's saying this because of the appearing of Jesus at Christmas. We've experienced grace. We've embraced hope. And we can have confidence in the middle of suffering. In a sense, Paul is saying this. Don't forget in the dark what God has taught you in the light, right? While he's in a prison cell, he is, he is falling back on those old, unchanging truths of the gospel, saying, these haven't changed. Everything else may have changed. My address has changed and where I'm living and maybe my, my plans for the future have changed. But God's grace has not changed. So notice his confidence. The coming of Jesus unleashes all of this grace. And let's Paul say this. Look at the end of verse 12. So it's okay, I'm, I'm, I'm suffering. I'm not ashamed. Why? For... Here's the reason. Here's the ground why I can be bold and unashamed. I know whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded, I'm confident, I'm convinced that he is able, he is powerful to keep, to guard that which I have committed unto him, that which I have entrusted unto him against that day. While the gospel may bring suffering, it also brings strength to withstand that suffering. So notice what he says. I know whom I have believed. No, he says, I know the one that I have trusted. I just don't know things. I know a person. That's Christianity, a personal relationship, personal trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not just, well, growing up, I went through confirmation class, and I was able to give a positive affirmation to such and such catechism. No, this is personal reliance on Jesus Christ. It's not just, uh-huh, I agreed to some, some things that someone asked me some questions. Do you think you're a sinner? Yes. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Will you say this prayer? Yes. This is more than just affirming some things mentally. This is personal, deep-down confidence. I am trusting and relying on him. Now, what brings him great hope, great confidence, is I know whom I've believed. Listen, our confidence is only as good as its object. Faith in a non-historical Jesus who's just sort of the, the Jesus who gives us a good pattern. That faith will not do when the lights go out and the jail cell closes. Faith in the Jesus who gives us a good moral example to follow. That won't stand when you're going through suffering. Faith However, in the eternally existent, prophecy-fulfilling, grace-revealing, sin-bearing, death-defeating Jesus, that alone will withstand the onslaught of imprisonment and darkness and death and sickness and depression. That's what will will hold you. Faith in that Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. So why fear death if you trust the death-defeater? I know whom. Do you know the one that you have entrusted yourself to? Do you know the Jesus of the Bible? Do you know him as all those things that I just described? Or is the Jesus you trust kind of a, I don't know really what he's like. Is he, is he God's son? Is he the one who went to the cross for you? Or is he just this Jesus who's kind of a nice guy who ran around in a white bathrobe 2,000 years ago with 12 dudes who followed him around and that's about it? Who is this Jesus? But he goes on to say this. I know whom I have believed and, 
Here's the second reality that, that, that gives him this confidence. And I'm persuaded he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. He's saying, I'm persuaded that he is able. By the way, that, that word able is related to the word translated power in verse 8 and in verse 9. The power of God kind of knits this passage together. I'm persuaded that he has the power, he has the ability to guard that which I have entrusted. So think about this. You go to the bank and you make your deposit at the bank. All of us have pretty reasonable confidence that if we go to the bank tomorrow and be like, hey, I want to withdraw my money, they, they'll be like, what? They, they won't be like, what money? We, we lost it. It got stolen. Like, there, there's confidence there. He's saying, I've entrusted my all and my eternity to Jesus, and I have 100% confidence that he will be able to guard everything that I have committed to him. Now, what have we committed to him? My eternity, my life, my days, my moments, everything entrusted to him. It belongs to him, and guess what? He's not going to lose anything we entrust him. He's not going to say, uh-oh, I have no record of that deposit. He's not going to get to judgment day and say, well, some inflation happened. It's no longer worth anything, so we're going to have to set. No, he's, he's going to keep perfectly all that we entrust to him. And Paul says, I'm persuaded he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him, what I've entrusted to him, against that day. Now, what is that day? The last day, the day of judgment, the day when we, 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 we die and we stand before Jesus Our only hope in life and death is this, that I am my Lord's, that I've entrusted myself to him, that Jesus has died for me, that he has risen for me, and that he keeps me. Paul had deposited his eternity and his soul in God's safekeeping, and he was confident. Paul looked past the next dreary day in that dungeon to the bright and glorious last day. He looked beyond death to life, eternal life. So what makes this all hold together. Right there at the heart of this text, all of this is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Without the reality that Christmas declares, we don't really have anything to keep us going. Listen, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you say, I, 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 I can't believe in this God of the Bible. There's too much suffering and evil in the world. I say, well, what better alternative do you have? Right? As, a Christian, we can, as Christians, we can say, There is a good purpose that God has in suffering. That one day he will redeem suffering and one day he will deliver sufferers. One day he will deal with all evil and sin. But if you're not a Christian, all the suffering and pain that happens in our world is completely meaningless and random. So I ask you, like, is that a better worldview? Is that a more reasonable worldview? Is that more optimistic? Is that a a better way to look at life? Or to say, no, there's a sovereign God who ordains our moments and our days, and he has good and gracious purposes that I may not understand right now, but it includes suffering. That even the suffering that I go through right now has a good purpose. That when all of history is done, when I get to that last day, I can look back and say, ah, now I can see what he had in mind. Through the appearing of Jesus, God's sovereign and saving and sustaining grace has been revealed to carry us through each day. Through the appearing of Jesus... Death has been defeated, taking away that final enemy. Through the appearing of Jesus, we have confidence. Here's what I'm saying. Christmas past, what happened those centuries ago, invades your Christmas present. Even if your Christmas present looks pretty bleak. And by the way, it guarantees that the Christmas future, when we one day are in the presence of Jesus. One of the hymns we sing has this line, In our longing, in our darkness, the light of life has come. I love that. And that same light shines shines in history, but it can shine right now in the midst of what you are walking through. 
So perseverance in suffering does not seem like a, a gift any of us would want. Yet it is a gift that God has put under the tree for every one of his children. We are going to face suffering. It's just a reality. We all will face death. But will we press on trusting God? We can, Paul says, because God's grace is now made manifest by the appearing of his Son. Father, we praise you for the gift that we have of Jesus. We praise you for the perseverance to us to help